So we're in this series on prophet, priest, king, and savior. Who is this? The savior born in Christmas. And we're going to be in Matthew chapter 2, at least for starters today. So last week we looked at the wise men who committed their time and their efforts and their best thinking and their treasures, really their lives, to seeking for the king of the Jews, Jesus. And wise men still seek Jesus. The wise men also were called the Magi, and it's a religious class of astronomers and astrologers, and the name Magi is related to our word magic, and certain ways they were magicians, and they came from Persia, which is modern-day Iran, and I've wondered sometimes if there's a connection between them coming from, um, uh, you know, from Babylon area and um, Daniel, who is in the Bible, because I know he lived a long time before them. But he was a lot like them. I mean, he was brilliant, and he spent a lot of time talking to God and to looking into the sky, and he was willing to follow God at great personal sacrifice. He was willing to stand alone when necessary. And uh, who knows, maybe he left behind the Daniel school, you know, in Babylon. And so they had come along from that. We don't know. But these wise men most likely weren't Jews, and they weren't Christians, and they didn't know the Bible. They were Gentiles. They were pagans. And they... They're not really the type that you would mix in with the angels and the shepherds and uh, Joseph and Mary and the rest of the characters in the Christmas story. But here's how Matthew records their adventure. In chapter 2, he says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he to be born king of the Jews? We have seen his star when it rose, or from the east, and have come to worship him. And when Herod heard the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. Now Herod, he was born a commoner, an alien really. His uh, family was from Edom, which is on the other side of the Jordan River. It's a different uh, nation. The Edomites were descendants of Esau. So at one point, um, Jacob and Esau you know, were twins in the same womb, and uh, Jacob had children, and they became the 12 tribes of Israel. Esau's descendants became the people of Edom, and often they were uh, fighting with each other. But at one point, his grandparents, Herod's grandparents, had been forced to become Jewish, and his father had been a servant in the court of the Jewish king, and then along came a revolt, and his father Antipater was killed, his older brother Phasael, who was the governor of Jerusalem, was killed, um, and Herod managed to escape the city of Jerusalem that night, which was on fire and in a riot, and uh, save his own life, and he raced to Rome, and um, they, he told the story there, and they declared him the king of the Jews, and gave him legions of soldiers, sent him back to Jerusalem to, to uh, put the riot uh, to rest. And it took him three years to subdue the city uh, of Jerusalem, and then he was made king, and Herod was king for about 40 years. 40 years of trying to look legitimate. 40 years of wanting to be liked by people who couldn't stand you. 40 years of collecting taxes from stingy people. 40 years of keeping the peace among a contentious people. 40 years of living in fear. 40 years of building up defenses and of destroying your enemies, even putting to death members of your own family if you saw them as a threat. Three of his own sons he put to death. So he's hearing a new king of the Jews has been born. <laughs> well, yes, Herod's troubled. And he troubled all of Jerusalem. He, I mean, he spent 40 years trying to pose as the legitimate king. Now one is just going to be born and to steal that from him. So it says, verse 4, assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, which it doesn't say this, but I assume it happened in the middle of the night. He inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. Here are people who've dedicated their lives to serving in the temple of God, studying scriptures, and they're told 
Somebody's here looking for a baby king. Where is he to be born? Well, they know the answer just like this. It's in Bethlehem. That's what it says in Micah chapter 5, verse 2. O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will be shepherd of my people Israel. The thing that's amazing is these Bible scholars who've lived in, in Jerusalem, it's only five or six miles to go to, to Bethlehem. There's no record of any of them showing up there. Wise men have traveled a thousand miles. They've committed their time, talent, and treasure to finding this new king of the Jews. And the ones who work right there in the temple, given this warning, couldn't bother to walk five miles to see Jesus. See, if God is doing something, wouldn't you want to be part of it? Of course you would. If you recognize that God is always good, then yes, whatever God's doing, you want to be part of it. And Herod, I think, I think those, uh, the Jewish leaders missed their moment. I think Herod missed his moment too. I mean, this wasn't like all the other threats that had come his way. This one was announced with a star in the sky. This one was an act of God. You never want to pit yourself against God. God always wins. If you want your life to win, you align with God, not against him. So instead, Herod lies. He manipulated things. He, he said he wanted to worship the child when, in fact, he wanted to kill him. So he asked the wise men, you go check it out and come back and tell me all about it. But God intervened. Verse 9, after listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star they had seen, when it rose, went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. I mean, that's about to the fourth degree, isn't it? They rejoiced. They rejoiced exceedingly. They rejoiced with joy. That was really great. They got excited about this, kind of like Daya singing her song. I told her she ought to do one of these when she was singing that song. You know what I'm saying? It's just, just, to, just to get us into it. She looked at me like, you must be nuts. <laughs> the star had been leading them. Suddenly it disappeared. They, they go to Jerusalem to ask. They get the directions from the king, but then they go out and the star is back. I don't think this was a usual star. I think God was doing something spectacular. They've tried to find it was a Halley's Comet, but that showed up about, I don't know, five or six years before this. And, uh, and so it couldn't have been that. I suppose God could have aligned something. He could do it however he wanted. But I think this was something spectacular that took them right to the house. It says, after listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star they had seen went before them. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother. They fell down and they worshipped him. They opened their treasures. They offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country another way. These wise men had been on a quest, a two-year journey to find the new king of the Jews. It was an amazing statement of courage and faith. They had spent a fortune in treasure and a great sacrifice of time and effort in their journey. And I think the writer of this book, Matthew, wants us to be reminded that God is calling everyone. He loves everybody in the world. He's calling people from every race and religion and nationality and economic status. They're all being drawn to Jesus like pins to a magnet. These, uh, these men might have been kings themselves, but they came looking for the new God-given king. And they're rewarded. They found him. We've been looking for how Jesus is the complete fulfillment of the, the gifts of leadership that God gave to his people, that among all the prophets, Jesus is the greatest prophet, and among all the priests and high priests, Jesus is the greatest high priest who will be our high priest forever. 
in the presence of God. And as far as kings go, Jesus was king of kings. He's the best of the best of every category. In fact, we'll see next week he'll, he'll take it to the highest level that besides prophet, priest, and king, Jesus is also the promised savior. He's the Messiah. He's the oh, Wait, that's for next week. You don't want to miss next week. I mean, I know it's Christmas morning, but we are celebrating Jesus' birthday. And the wise men gave baby Jesus a gift of frankincense. We talked about last week. It's a gift you'd only give to a priest. Frankincense was the smell of prayer and of worship to God. The wise men also gave Jesus, a, a baby Jesus, a gift of gold. Now picture this. A caravan shows up in their front yard. Not, not, like, a, not like a Dodge caravan, you know, minivan. A, a caravan, a long line of camels with, we, there, we had three gifts, so we think there's three wise men, but... This had to be a large enough troop that was traveling that they didn't have to worry about being attacked by anybody. They probably had their own small little army. So they come up to this you know, substantial house in a lower middle class neighborhood in Bethlehem and they park all over the front lawn and they ring the doorbell. I mean, the neighbors are looking out the windows gawking and some of them gathered out in the street. What is going on? Who are these people coming to our town? Nobody ever shows up here looking like that. And they go to the door and they knock on the door and inside there's a toddler. He's not even two years old yet, probably 22 months. And this little guy runs to the door to answer the door, as kids that age would love to do. And his mother calls him, hey, wait, wait, Jesus, wait. But instinctively, I mean, she's trying to protect him from strangers and from dangers. And he's too fast for her to catch. And he gets there and he undoes the latch and he swings the door open and just then Mary gets there and then everybody stops and gasps. I mean, Jesus and Mary are stunned by the sight of men dressed in expensive foreign clothes. Who are those guys? And all the camels all over their front yard. And the wise men are stunned by the appearance of a king who's less than three feet tall. Jews and Gentiles in one moment coming together, foreigners and locals, rich and poor, famous wise men who've just been with King Herod, and an anonymous, obscure mother and her little son living in a mud brick house in no nothing Bethlehem. And before anyone can speak a word, the wise men bow down and they worship this little boy. They worship him. They treat him as more than a king. They are worshiping him as a god. Now, Mary and Joseph, you see, were wonderful people. They were good. They were godly. They were specially chosen. They were blessed by God. But the wise men didn't worship Mary. They didn't worship Joseph. They just worshiped Jesus. He's God. I imagine then after a quiet moment of worship where they're bowing down to him, Mary says, why don't y'all come in? And opens the door and wishes she had done a little more cleaning. And, you know, if it was a typical house, there was an inside courtyard surrounded by rooms and rugs are hastily gathered and put on the floor for people to sit on and uh, cushions. And then food is brought and put in the middle where everybody kind of shares in it together. And the guests eat with their hands. And then everybody sits and talks for hours says the wise men opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and of frankincense and of myrrh. Kind of like Christmas morning sounds like, doesn't it? Yeah. Now, they're opening gifts. I don't know how you do it at your house. We went and visited Sydney's sister once. We were absolutely shocked. They waited until after dark on Sunday night, and then they gave him presents, and then somebody must have said, one, two, three, go, and it was mayhem. Everybody tried to open everything all at the same time. Within a matter of seconds, everything was open that we'd waited all day to watch. You couldn't, you couldn't watch everything. In, in the home I grew up, which, uh, I mean, we were stretched in our means 
And we, you know, we, I, I didn't feel poor, but, you know, we didn't have a lot. And so every gift would be carefully placed in somebody's lap. And then you would open that very carefully and very slowly with a pair of scissors so you could save the ribbon and the paper. In fact, there would be discussions. Do you remember what was wrapped in this paper last year? <laughs> and you would ooh and ah as they opened the gift. It'd take about three hours for eight people to open a pair of socks. <laughs> and then you'd take a break and come back later. I mean, it'd take over the better part of a week to get all the gifts open, both of them. Now, we're not sure why these three gifts were chosen or how much gold and incense and myrrh was given, but would you go travel a thousand miles to give a tip? No. These, you know, I don't know that the wise men understood there, there was special significance to each of the gifts that, that they gave. Maybe they were simply giving the standard gifts that you give, you know, among that level of people. And uh, there was significance whether they knew it or not. I mean, I think they gave huge gifts to Jesus. These are upper-class pilgrims who have been on a, a two-year journey looking for this king, and they found him. So I think their gifts were over the top, kind of like your gifts were to the Marines, 600 Marines, or uh, uh, all of the... The children at the Y, or the money that we gave, we gave a gift at the end of the concert last week um, for each of the concerts and uh, to go for the Marines, and there were envelopes in the, the Christmas um, uh, programs that we had. And so people would put the envelopes into the baskets. You know what the surprise was? Quite a few of those envelopes were empty when they were opened by the people counting. It's kind of sad, isn't it, that people would want the pretense of looking the part of, oh, I'm giving a gift to the Marines, and put the envelope in, but there's nothing in it. And um, there were many that were generous. I, you understand, I'm just saying, it was, it's interesting. I don't think the wise men did that, come this far to give a token. I think they were lavish in their generosity to Jesus. And I think they gave a treasure full of, a chest full of treasure. After all, they came to worship him. And worship implies significance and sacrifice. Now, gold has always been a symbol of royalty. Kings have large reserves of gold. Crowns are made with gold. Taxes are paid in gold. Armies are paid in gold. And the gift of gold declared the rule and the reign of Jesus as a king. Now, he might have lived in this substantial house in a middle-class neighborhood in Bethlehem while, Pilate, or while Herod lives in this lavish palace in Jerusalem. But Jesus was the true king. And Herod was the pretender. So they gave gold to Jesus, and then they skipped town as quick as they could to avoid Herod. This gift of gold declares Jesus' kingship over more than just the Jews. He's king of the Persians, the Iranians, the Gentiles, the people of every nation, language, and tribe. He is the king of kings and lord of lords. Do the wise men know all that when they give their gift to Jesus? Do they know that he's the full son of God? Do they give their gold with the expectation that someday he's going to rule the universe? Did they know that he was the promised Messiah, that he was the son of David? The Savior of sinners? Did they know he was going to die on the cross and rise from the dead? No, of course they didn't know all that. They were simply acted on the little information that they had, and they responded to the inner promptings of God's Holy Spirit, and they said, I've got to do something. And they worshiped in simple, sincere faith, and they gave out of generosity, of a heart of appreciation. 
They didn't know how much of a king Jesus really was. These guys hit the bullseye. I mean, God allowed the wise men to declare his son's royalty and to fund the family's escape to Egypt. Could God have done his work without them? Of course he could have. The good news for them was he didn't do it without them. He included them. That's the good news for you and me too. Could God do his work in this world without you and me? Sure he could. But he wants to include us. He wants us to join him as his partners. He wants us to sacrifice so that others can hear of Jesus. Centuries before Jesus, the Jewish people had said, God, we want a king. We want to be like everybody else around us. And God felt rejected, but he still gave them a king. And the first king was named Saul. And he was kind of an experiment. And he failed because he didn't follow God. So the next king, David, was a man after God's own heart, and he was blessed by God, and he followed God, and he did his best, and when he got off track, he apologized, and he came back to God, and God was so uh, impressed with him that he said, David, because your heart really follows after me, there will always be a king from your family line on the throne of Israel. Well, Jesus is the fulfillment of that promise, because he's the king of kings, and he will reign forever. David's son Solomon was king in the glory days of Israel. God actually came and spoke to him in, in visions twice. And he built this magnificent temple in Jerusalem to God, but he let his heart wander. He went around the world collecting trophy wives from everywhere. And, and that's sad, but the Bible says those wives brought their foreign gods with them and they turned Solomon's heart away from God. And for the next 400 years, they had kings. Most of them were bad. Some of them were good. Nobody measured up to David. And the people prayed for a godly king who would give them protection and peace and prosperity in their land. And when you have a good leader, that's what you get. You get protection and you get peace and you get prosperity. In Psalm 110, God promised that his son would become king, that he would reign forever and ever. And then along comes Jesus, God's promised king. God provided just as he said he would. Problem was, Jesus didn't look like a king. He didn't sound like a king. He didn't act like a king. In fact, when the people were amazed with his miracles and said, he's kind of timid, we should force him to become king, he ran away. He ran away. He didn't sound like a king. When he'd talk, he would talk about the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. It shows up in almost every chapter in the book of Matthew. You could read it and, and be blessed by it. I mean, in chapter 4, Jesus did have a kingdom, but he, and he announced it in his preaching. He says... Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he went throughout all Galilee, he, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, healing every disease and every affliction among the people. You get to chapter 12 of Matthew. It says a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him so that the man spoke and he saw. That's amazing the kind of miracle Jesus could do. And all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? In other words, is this the guy who's coming, who's from the line of David? Is he the one who's going to be the king? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, huh, it's only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Knowing their thoughts, Jesus said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he's divided against himself. How then will this kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. 
God's kingdom has come and is coming. And it's not a geography. It's not a place. It's when he rules and reigns in our hearts. And God is going to call together in Jesus Christ a kingdom of people who recognize him as King of kings and Lord of lords, who put him first in their lives and follow him in all things. Jesus is the true king of the new people of God, but many people don't recognize him. Or they're, when they do, they're unwilling to submit to his rule and his reign in their life. And they put themselves in opposition to Jesus. And a true king leads. And true faithful followers follow. This came to a boiling point in Jesus' life on his last trip to Jerusalem. It says as he was drawing near on his way down the Mount of Olives, you come to the Mount of Olives, you can see into the city of Jerusalem across the Kidron Valley. And it was there that a whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, all the miracles Jesus did. And they said, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Because if somebody else is a king and Herod and his uh, legions are in the city of Jerusalem, they would certainly feel threatened. Of course, at that time, by now, it's Pontius Pilate, isn't it? but he would still feel threatened and would exercise his strength to say, we're going to overthrow this new little king. And Jesus said, I tell you, if these stones, they were silent, the stones would cry out. In other words, I am the king who comes in the name of the Lord. I am the one who's going to bring peace in heaven. I am the one who will receive the glory in the highest. And shortly after that, the religious leaders managed to arrest Jesus in the middle of the night. And they got him to have a trial before Pilate. And even Pilate, when he put Jesus on trial, he wondered about Jesus. In John 18, it says, So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews and Jesus answered, do you say this of your own accord or did others say it to you about me? And Pilate said, am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? And Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my first servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. And then Pilate said, so you are a king. Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king. For this purpose I was born and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And Pilate said to him, what is truth? Pilate missed his moment. He could have said, you are the way, the truth, and the life. And I should be bowing before you that you might set me free. Instead, he asks more philosophically, well, what is truth? After he'd said this, Pilate went back outside to the Jews and he told them, I find no guilt in him. Now here in America, we don't have a king. <coughs> we have a president. We have a democracy. We have freedom of speech, which means anybody can say any fool thing they want. They can denigrate the president and not suffer the consequences of their loose lips. It wasn't that way in Jesus' day. A king rules. A king reigns. A king leads and pronounces judgments. And your words matter. And a king doesn't need to and probably won't ask for your opinion. Loyal citizens' job is to listen and to honor and to follow and to respect and to fulfill the wishes of the king. So Jesus appeared in this world as a small baby and he lived a humble life and was gracious and gentle. But don't be fooled. Don't be fooled into thinking that it's weakness or an opportunity to treat him casually or uh, just treat him as one of your many options. 
because he is going to rule and to reign as king and kings and lord of lords of this world. And he's going to gather those together who've recognized that and have submitted themselves. So these wise men who came from the east did the best thing. They took note of the clues given to them of what God was doing. And they asked a lot of questions. And they followed the clues. In their case, it was a bright star. And they went on a search, which they pursued until they found him. No distance was too far. No price was too great. They were on a quest to find the truth. And God's Word tells us, God promises, if with all your heart you truly seek me, you will find. They found the one to be born king of the Jews. And they bowed before Jesus and they worshipped him. And they gave generously of their own resources. And then they followed God's guidance, even down to the details of who not to talk to and how to get back home. They had to go east to go home. And Jesus' family, as soon as they left, headed south as fast as they could to hide in Egypt. You look at what these wise men did and contrast it to another wise man who was in Jerusalem shortly after this, whose name was Saul. Saul was brilliant. He studied ancient scriptures in Jerusalem. He was an up-and-comer in his class. He was the valedictorian. And yet he, when confronted with Jesus, he refused to recognize that Jesus was more than a man. He refused even after Jesus rose from the dead, even after Jesus had predicted, I will come back from the dead. And Saul dedicated his life to opposing Jesus, to snuffing out the truth. In fact, he was on a trip to another city to, uh, to arrest some people and to make examples out of them so that out of fear, people would not follow Jesus. And in his mercy, instead of taking Saul's life, Jesus just knocked Saul to the ground with a blast of light. And he spoke the truth with authority that he was the king of kings. And Saul, whose last name was Paul, he was Saul Paul, finally did the right thing. He submitted himself to the rule and the reign of Jesus. Now later, Saul is writing a letter to a friend and gave the strongest encouragement to follow Jesus without having to be knocked up the side of the head first. In 1 Timothy 6, he says this, I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings, and Lord of Lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Saul has finally become a wise man because he submitted himself to the rule and reign of Jesus Christ in his life. You and I must do the same. The Bible ends with a book called Revelation, which is a vision into the future. Wouldn't that be great to know exactly what the future was bringing? Wouldn't it be great to know where the stock market's going to be a month from today? I mean, think how you could position yourself if you just knew what was coming. Jesus gave this book of Revelation so we would know what's coming. We know that Jesus is coming as King of Kings. 
and that he will reign, rule and he will reign. And those who have honored him in this life will celebrate with him in the next. In Revelation 19, John wrote, I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and he makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows him but himself. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven are arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. Earlier in his vision, John had said, Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. God has made Jesus king of kings. Your vote doesn't change a thing. We do not make Jesus Lord. He's already Lord whether we like it or not. The Bible tells us that God has highly exalted him and given him a name above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Some will do it willingly because they have recognized Jesus. Others will do it begrudgingly when they're forced into it because they have lost everything because they did not recognize Jesus for who he is. Why not make him king in your life today? I mean, you compare your life to the life of the wise men. Believe it or not, there's quite a few parallels. You say, really? Yeah, they were wealthy, and so are you. I mean, just to live here in Dana Point, just to live here in South Orange County, you are very near the front of the line. Seven billion people in the world, you've got to be in the top one or two percent just to live here. You've got options that so many people do not have. These wise men were willing. They were looking at their world to say, where is God at work? And when they saw something out of the ordinary that they, for which they had no explanation except God, then they said, God must be doing something. So they put themselves on full alert. We've got to figure out what God is doing. They were wondering, is God doing something exceptional that would demand some response from me? Is God doing something so exceptional that should I be just be going about my business as usual or should I stop what I'm doing and follow God? This put the wise men to wandering. They were willing to go to great lengths and to great expense in response to God's actions. They wandered until they found the reason. And when they found him, they worshipped him. It changed their behavior. It cost them something. They joyfully gave. I mean, this is the King of kings and Lord of lords you're talking about. This is the one we worship. This is the one we celebrate as the hope of the world. This is the Savior. Oh, that's next week. And he... He is the only one who can give true peace in our hearts, in our world, and forever in eternity. Do you know, I was blessed a couple of weeks ago, one of our 20-somethings, and I hope you've adopted one, right? I've been challenging you. Adopt one of our 20-somethings so that they think of you as one of their best friends by name, not just, oh, Lord, you know, bless the young people. Really go out of your way to make friends with one. So one of our 20-somethings came up to see me and he said, Pastor Ty, I got that letter from you saying that we should give more. I said, yes, he said. 
I decided it's time. I should do something. And he handed me a check. I mean, it just blew me away. And then he walked away. I mean, it really on a regular Sunday would be one of our largest three gifts. I, this was from somebody in their 20s. And I'm saying, oh my goodness, wow, his gift is over the top generous. So I asked him, would you light one of our candles? He said, sure, I would love to. It's supposed to be today. Last night at 11.54, I got this text from him. He said, Dear Pastor Time, my flight from Colorado to home was canceled tonight, and after three hours of waiting in lines and trying to talk to customer service, I'm stuck here in Denver, and I'm not going anywhere until Monday. My topic was on peace for tomorrow, and I'm being tested on that now as I'm surrounded by hundreds of disgruntled passengers all in the same boat as me. My verse I was going to read tomorrow is Philippians 4, 7, which says, the peace of God which transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. I really wish I could be there tomorrow, and I was so honored to have had the invitation. I hope for another chance next year. I was going to mention that I think I've heard you preach over 500 times in the last 13 years. And I've been coming, I've been blessed by everyone. It has also been a huge blessing to serve in children's ministry for the last 12 years. And now next May, I will be married by Pastor Dana. I'm so blessed to be part of the South Shores family. I will miss you all tomorrow. Thank you. And he signed his name. Another wise man. How do we be like that where we're so generous, so appreciative, for what God has done for us. He's given us Jesus, the King of kings. Jesus is the king we need. Let us worship him today with our time, our talents, our treasure, our all. Shall we pray? Dear Jesus, I thank you that you are calling men and women to yourself. And wise men, wise women will hear your call. And we'll respond like the wise men did. We will go to any lengths. We'll practice generosity. We will be on our knees before you, worshiping you because you are worthy of our worship and you are King of kings and Lord of lords. And we want to be on your team that wins. Thank you for coming into this world so long ago. Thank you that God couldn't hold it back with the buttons bursting on his vest. He had the angels singing, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace. Thank you that we get to hear the story and respond. May we not just go about business as usual, but may we present you the best gift we possibly can this Christmas, our own hearts. Oh, come to our hearts, Lord Jesus. There is room in our hearts for you. Amen.